Good morning, everyone. Uh, we've been reading Paul's letter to the Galatian church together this fall, and uh, this morning we will finish it together. So Paul uh, closes out this letter to his friends by giving them a couple final instructions and then by telling them the thing that matters the most to him. So I'm going to read from Galatians 6, verses 6 through 16. That's printed in your order of worship, and you can follow along there or in a Bible. Or you, you can just listen as I read from Galatians 6. <clears throat> Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang those words that uh, to you all hearts are open. And Father, we admit with open hands that that's true, uh, even if we don't want it to be true, even uh, if we're not aware that it's true. We cannot hide from you. You know us intimately. And so we ask that you'd be happy to meet us through this word that we've read and heard together that we're going to talk about together, to meet us in the places where we find ourselves inside of faith or outside of faith, near to you, far from you, struggling, joyful. Father, meet us where we are and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I hope uh, all of you had a a good Thanksgiving with family and with friends. Um, Our family got to spend time with Allison's family here in the city, and it was nice. And uh, one remarkable thing uh, about our Thanksgiving is that we got to enjoy not one but two turkeys, one that was traditionally roasted and another one that was smoked. They were both really good. And my guess is that probably most of you uh, had some kind of turkey this last week, uh, according to the National Turkey Federation, which is really a thing. Um, 88% of us eat turkey on Thanksgiving. That, that translates into about 46 million turkeys this last week. 
It's just what we eat on Thanksgiving because I suppose it is, we think that it is uh, traditional. Well, a few years ago, I read this great book called The First Thanksgiving. It was by a historian named Robert Tracy McKenzie. And there is actually a chapter in that book about the first celebration of Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving meal. Uh, and it begins with this general observation. He writes that typically only a portion of popular perception about the past is firmly grounded in historical evidence. The other part, often the more entertaining part, consists of stuff that somebody made up. So you can probably guess where he's going as a historian. He, he points to this novel that was written by Jane Goodwin Austen in uh, 1889. Not to be confused with the much more famous Jane Austen. This is a different one. This, this woman wrote a book called Standish on Standish, and it was wildly popular. It went through about 28 printings. And about nine years after it was published, the Ladies Home Journal wrote an article called uh, The First Thanksgiving, and it drew heavily on this book by Austin. And Mackenzie says that our imagination about the first Thanksgiving is pretty much cemented by these two particular pieces of work. And he estimates that about 99% of it was just made up. Uh, for instance, the, the big buckles that we always imagine adorning the waists of pilgrim men were unheard of among common people for another 50 years. For another thing, forks. Forks were available in England at the time, but common people considered them pretentious. It's very unlikely that no one had a fork at the first Thanksgiving. It was probably spread on the ground like a picnic and eaten with hands. But the big gotcha, of course, in this chapter was about that perfectly roasted plump turkey that we always imagine placed at the center of the table with all of this other heaping food on it. Mackenzie says that waterfowl like ducks and heron and cranes uh, and geese were much easier to catch than wild turkeys, and that it was probably a fowl like that that was eaten, along with mussels and clams and eel on the first Thanksgiving. Well, I do, I like knowing all of that stuff. I thought the book was really interesting, but I love, love not caring about it at all when it comes to planning a Thanksgiving menu. I mean, I will take the 1897 Ladies' Home Journal 1,000 times over some boring historian's Thanksgiving menu because on a Thanksgiving menu, there's pretty much only one thing that matters to me, and it is not eel, and it is not heron. It is turkey. That is all that matters to me on Thanksgiving. And the Apostle Paul, as he finishes out this letter, says something very similar. He says there is really only one thing that matters to him. There's only one thing that really, really matters. The only thing, he says in verse 15, that counts for anything is new creation. New creation is the only thing that matters. This new creation which exploded into being at the cross of Jesus is what matters most to Paul because it is what orders his living, his loving, and his working in this world. And he hopes that the same will be true for his friends and that the same would be true for us too. 
So if you were here last week, you might remember that this is the part of the letter where Paul is applying all that he has argued for, sometimes really passionately, to the interior life of the church. It's like he's asking, you know, if, if humans are becoming the people that they were created to be as part of this new creation, if Jesus is growing the fruit of the Spirit in these people, if these people are really, really free, what will it look like? What will it look like individually? What will it look like communally? And if you were here, you might remember that Paul said, this is what it will look like. It will look like us moving towards one another. It will look like you and me moving towards one another in gentleness to restore those who have messed up, those who are walking away. It will look like you and I moving towards one another, going shoulder to shoulder to bear each other's burdens in this world. He called this the law of Christ, the law of love. In other words, if people are really free, like new creation free, they will begin to love others as Jesus has loved them. And so in our passage in verse 6, he continues to say this is what it will look like. And it it takes an odd shape at first. Paul says, let the one who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. I don't know if you caught this while I was reading it or even caught it as I just quoted it again, but Paul is doing here what he's really, really good at. Paul is talking about money without using any of the normal words for money. He does this all of the time. And here what he's doing is saying that his friend should support someone who has been teaching them. could be himself that he's talking about. It could be someone else who is more local, who lives with them. We can't be sure. But either way... The important thing here is that Paul doesn't cast this as a a commercial relationship. Nothing could be further from how Paul thinks about the church as a family. More literally, what Paul says here is let there be a communion. Let there be a fellowship of all good things between the one who teaches and those who are taught. It is a deeply communal vision for life together in the church. Our life together is not to be consumptive of one another. We do not consume and plunder. Your pastors and your staff, we're we're not service providers. We're not vendors. And you, as a congregation, aren't clients or customers. We are together a family. And we care for each other. Our gifts are given as a trust to all of us by God to use for the common good. And I think that one of the beautiful things that happens to people who are really free, who begin to feel free in this gospel, who begin to be set free by Christ, is that people who experience that freedom grow in generosity because our money, our resources, our time stop dominating us. And they begin to take their right place in our lives as a gift that God has given us to use for good. Free people are generous, open-handed people because they have been the objects of the generous and open-handed love and grace of the God of all things. And the Galatians are already like that. Paul, you might remember back in verse four, back in chapter four said, you, you guys would have given me anything to care for me. You would have gouged your eyes out. These are a generous people and he's just encouraging them to continue in that. 
So let me encourage us, all of us, starting with me, to the same thing. When we feel protective of, when we feel defensive of our resources and our time and our gifts, it is because we are forgetting who we are. We are forgetting the way that we have been loved and the grace that we have been given. So let us remember in faith and move towards each other with generosity and open hands. So Paul continues these last instructions in verse 7. And he writes, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Literally, what he says is you, you cannot thumb your nose at God. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, at first it conjures up an image of God sitting somewhere in heaven, eagle-eyed, watching over us, just waiting for us to mess up so he can set us straight. That is not anything close to what Paul means here. And that becomes clear with the next words. He says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's just the way that it works. This is what sometimes is called an absolute principle, which is a fancy way of saying this is how the world works. <laughs> if you sow barley, you're definitely going to reap barley. <laughs> if you sow beans, it doesn't matter how much you really, really hope corn is going to sprout up, it's beans that are going to sprout up. It's not rocket science. But Paul applies this now to the moral universe. And he uses these terms that he just introduced a few sentences ago. He says, sow to your own flesh and you'll reap corruption, but sow to the Spirit and from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. He's saying that the moral universe has this absolute law in it, and we all know that to be true. <laughs> We've enshrined it in stories and in parables and in common sense sayings. We know that it's true. If we sow dishonesty in our relationships, we're going to reap messed up relationships and eventually loneliness. If we sow envy in our lives, we're just going to reap bitterness and jealousy. There is an ecology to the way that we live. It's how the grain of the world works. And you can go against the grain of the world for a while and make it work for a while, but in the end, we know that we cannot live as less than the human beings we were created to be and get out healthy and whole. It just doesn't happen. And so thankfully, Paul says, we have been set free. God's people have been set free to live another way. So to the Spirit and from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. And we don't have to wonder what Paul means because he makes it clear in verses 9 and 10. He says, so let's not get weary in doing good because we will reap if we don't give up. And then he puts the finest point on it that he can. <laughs> He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Paul is telling his friends, this is how you sow to the Spirit. You sow to the Spirit by doing good, by living good into this world and into the lives of the people around you. It's a beautiful image. And I got to say, you know, from the moment that Paul penned the letters of his that we have in the New Testament, I mean, probably from just days after the first person read them, he's been taking it on the chin for playing fast and loose with grace. 
This letter is maybe one of the prime examples that his critics would hold up. Paul has said more than one time in this letter that God's people are free, that there is nothing that they have to do, that there is nothing that they could possibly do to earn God's forgiveness and grace and favor. There's nothing that they have to do to earn God remaking them in the image of Jesus. He's told them that they've been forgiven, that they have been made new by faith alone and absolutely nothing else added to it. He's told his friends in this letter that if they gave in to the people who had moved in and told them they, they were less than the Christians they should be because they weren't keeping these the right laws that they were supposed to keep, he said, listen, if you give in to them, it's like slavery. You have been made more for that, for more than that. You've been made for freedom. And, of course, the usual critique of Paul is, well, Paul, if you tell everybody that they don't have to earn it, if you tell everyone that there's nothing that they can do to get God's favor and forgiveness and love, then what keeps them from doing whatever they want to do? And I hope by now, as we have been reading this letter together enough, um, that we will realize that that critique of Paul... (laughs) makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) Because Paul doesn't imagine that if we are changed by the grace of Jesus, we will somehow slip into the chaos of doing whatever we want to do. Paul imagines that people who have been changed by the grace of Jesus will, in fact, be changed. (laughs) Changed into the people that they were created to be in the first place. Changed into people who are growing up to look like their elder brother Jesus. Changed into people who have the fruit of the Spirit more and more in their lives. Changed into people who live lives of self-giving love and service in this world precisely because they have been the objects of the self-giving love and service of God himself. So that's why he can say now, here at the end of this letter, without any hesitation, without any fear of misunderstanding, (laughs) that his friends ought to be doing as much good as they possibly can to as many people as they possibly can, and that they should keep it up even if they think the harvest is a long way off. He says, don't get tired. Keep doing good. Whenever you have an opportunity, do good to someone, for someone. He can say that because he knows that they know they're not earning anything when they do that. They are simply living into the wildly beautiful freedom of the life that they have been made for. They are finally following the law of love. And if you and I follow Jesus by faith, that is the life that we have been set free for too. This is the life of the church, a people who do good, a people whose lives are witnesses to the broken world of the love of God, of the renewing grace of God. And church, you know, people don't pick up on the love of God and the the renewing grace of God by reading what Christians are supposed to believe or looking it up on the internet. People pick up on the renewing grace and love of God when people like you and I live the good that we were made for into their lives. That's when they know. That's when they know without any question that they are people who are loved and worthy of it. 
when you and I live this good into the lives of the world around us. In our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our families, everywhere we find ourselves. Church, this is, this is red-blooded Christianity in all of its fullness. So Paul has finished now with the specifics, and he actually takes the pen out of the hand of the scribe he's been dictating to, and he writes the ending with his own hand. In verse 11, see with what large letters I write to you with my own hand. It is a warmly welcome touch for the end of a letter in which Paul has been hot and passionate and bold and bewildered. Now he's their pastor, their friend, just writing to them. And he tells them first something that he's only alluded to before. He tells them that those teachers who had swept in after he left Galatia and told them they weren't the Christians they should be yet, that they needed to keep some parts of the Old Testament law, he says, listen, you need to know they didn't have your best interests at heart. They were serving themselves. They didn't want to be persecuted. They wanted to be able to boast that they had done this to you. Now, we don't know how Paul knows these things, just like we don't know who exactly these other teachers were. He doesn't mount any argument to prove that it's true. I think that he just knows by now that his friends know enough to agree with him. But it gives him one last chance to talk about the thing that matters the most to him. He says, you know, they, they wanted to boast in you, far be it from me to boast, except in this one thing. I will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will boast in the cross of Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying that something decisive, something wildly different and decisive has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That event has given Paul a new way of looking at what God is doing with him. It's given him a new way of looking at himself, but more importantly, Jesus' death and resurrection has given Paul a new way of looking at the entire world and imagining what God is doing in the entire world. All of history has turned. This death has happened. This resurrection has happened. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole world died, and the whole world was raised again into new creation. It has happened. It means we can be forgiven and restored, that we can become new people who are free. It means the world is being renewed and all things are being reconciled to God through Jesus. That is what matters. New creation matters. And that's why Paul can say, these things that I've been arguing about for the last five and a half chapters, this law, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you should do with your body, what you shouldn't do with your body, none of that, none of that matters for anything. The only thing that matters is this new creation. New creation that was born at the cross of Jesus. It changes how we live. It changes how we love. It changes how we work in this world. And every one of us here, every one of us, has been invited to enter into that new creation. Maybe for the first time. Maybe we are being called back again. 
but we have been invited to enter into that new creation that matters more than anything else through faith in the Jesus who died and was raised for us. And church, in that new creation, we are free. We're free to know God's love for us. We are free to be called his children, his daughters, his sons. We are free to call him father without any hesitation. We are free to live lives of love and service in this world, to do good. We are free to be the humans that he meant us to be. And so, as Paul says, for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to be able to come alongside Paul in this moment and say the only thing that matters is this new creation. The only thing that is worth boasting about in the whole world is the cross of Jesus, which has changed everything, both us as individuals and the whole world. We thank you that you have loved us and you have loved the world that much. Father, we ask that you would help us to embrace Jesus by faith again, (laughs) that you would do that for our good and for our healing and for the good and healing of this broken world around us. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen.